And uh, so we'll continue where we left off from last week, Psalm 78. Psalm 78 in your Bibles. As we continue to go through the book of Psalm, we see 78 here to be a profound psalm that encourages uh, this Old Testament, if you will, Great Commission to reach the next generation. And we'll have a, we'll have a, a quick revision. In verse 3, we noted that the psalmist disclosed the fact that he was a byproduct of this Old Testament Great Commission. He says in verse 3, which we have heard and known and our fathers have taught us. And in verses 4 to 5, the psalmist continues to reinforce his own responsibility to reach his next generation. He says, we will not hide them from their children, showing to the, ne- showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. For he hath established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children. And then we saw verse 6, that the psalmist goes far, as far as making sure that his generation will be also faithful to declare it to their generation. He says that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should rise and declare them to their children. And in verse 7, we saw a threefold purpose for declaring the truth to the generation to come. That they might set their hope in God. That's the first one. And not forget the works of God. That's the second. But keep his commandments. That's the third. So first of all, uh, the whole point of passing on the truth to the next generation is so that they can rely on God. They can remember the works of God. And then they can retain the words of God. And in verse 8, the psalmist points out three things to warn their generation not to be like their forefathers. And uh, in verse 8, he says, And might not be as their fathers, number one, that were stubborn and, dis- and rebellious generation. Number two, a generation that set not their heart aright. And then number three, whose spirit was not steadfast with God. So they were a very bad example. They were disobedient people. They were stubborn and rebellious. We looked at the word stubborn simply means that they didn't want to move forward. They were like a dumb mule who would not budge. They were a stiff-necked people and they were willfully rebellious. And, uh, and then they were doubtful, a generation that did not set their heart aright. Their hearts were not firm and stable and established. And they were disrespectful, whose spirit was not steadfast with God. They were unfaithful people that lived a double life. Uh, you know, they would go so far and uh, they would stop and would not continue. As a matter of fact, they would blame God for certain things that took place as he led them through the wilderness. So last week, I also mentioned the fact that even if our fathers were not faithful to the Lord, it does not give us any reason that our generation should not be faithful to his word. Amen. Uh, As we move on to verses 9 and onward, we will notice a detailed and defined description of their disobedience and their doubtful and disrespectful disposition. Okay, And so we're going to look at that from verse 9 and onwards. We might stop. We can't, you know, to, uh, you know, some verses. We can't continue to where, how many? There is probably about 72 verses. And so we can't look at them all tonight, but we'll look at a few of them 
as we continue with this. Let's pray and, and, and pick it up from verse uh, 9. Father in heaven, our gracious God, we do come before you tonight and we do thank you that we can get, be gathered together here tonight and that we can sing to you, and, uh, not only sing to you in this midweek, but we can also learn from your word and pray for others. And so tonight we ask and pray that you will guide us in a way, Lord God, that is pleasing to you, that you would strengthen our hearts and minds. And uh, as my brother prayed, that we'll, Lord, that you would continue to be with those that cannot be with us tonight and that you'd have your hand upon them also. Father, we do love you. Um, we thank you for loving us first. And we pray that you would continue to teach us yet more and more to love you, that our love may abound yet more and more for you and for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Looking uh, in the details of their defined you know, disobedience and disrespectful demeanor uh, simply uh, gives us another way to ad admonish our children. Okay, we, we want to look at the details. We want to know how did they disobey and, and, and what did they do and how did they treat the Lord so we can, you know, show our children their stinking attitude toward God. We can say, listen, you don't want to be like this. This is how the children of Israel acted toward God and you don't want to be like this. Okay, we want to encourage our children to, to not have the same disrespectful demeanor as the children of Israel had in the wilderness. Second of all, uh, we can bring their attention to just how much, uh, you know, good our God is. And that's the whole purpose, I believe, the psalmist going through this, is that to show how good God was to the children of Israel, and they still disrespected Him. We can teach our children the value of loving God and not abusing His love for us. And so thirdly, we note the fact that God will deal with unrepentant sinners. So although that God loves all people and he, lo and he loved his people, uh, he, you know, he, uh, there comes a time where he has to reject his people that are vile, uh, that don't fear God nor love God. He has to reject them. Well, let me give you a little sneak peek in Psalm 78 and verse 38. Look at this. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their what? What did he forgive? Iniquity. Their iniquity. Okay, look at verse 38. He forgave their iniquity. He had compassion upon them. And look at it. He destroyed them not. So there was a room of forbearance that God had to these people. Yea, many a time turned his anger away and did not stir up his, all his wrath. Okay, so we see that gracious God, that merciful God toward these kind of people. However, look at verse 59. When God heard this, and we're going to see this in uh, more detail in the upcoming uh, um, uh, Wednesdays, uh, when we do have time to look through these. Uh, when God heard this, his, he was wroth and greatly what? Verse 59. Abhorred Israel. Are you looking there in the verse? Open your Bibles if you don't have them open. Look at the verse so we can see it. And when God heard this, he was wroth and greatly abhorred Israel. Now, what does abhorred mean? couldn't stand it was disgusted with them you know, how do you love a people and yet the same vein be disgusted with them oh look at their actions look at the way they're acting so how are they acting well let's let's begin look at verse 9 let's begin asaph points out that one 
particular tribe from the children of Israel were fearful and unfaithful. They turned back. And uh, in other words, number one, they were unfaithful in their, in, their, in their combat. Look at this. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of what? In the day of battle. So we see this tribe, Ephraim, played a significant part uh, in the days of Moses. The tabernacle was set up in their proximity and uh, they were influential in leading the other tribes. Uh, you can say that they were the leading tribe who had a lot of influence. You can uh, you know, really talk about the, this tribe this way. I'm not sure what the battle was or what Asaph is referring to here. I would like to take a guess and say that it was perhaps you know, going into you know, Canaan and then they were confronted with the giants of the land and they were fearful and turned back. And, uh, and so I would say that perhaps this was the case. But the point here is that they were not faithful in fulfilling their God-given responsibility. Okay, they were fully equipped. Uh, the Bible says that, but they still failed to take courage in the Lord and do the very things that God called them to do by faith. And the Bible says they turned back. In other words, they did not finish. Now, have you heard the term, it's not how you start, but it's how you finish? Have you heard that term? The world uses that term. I would submit to you, it is important for both. It's how you start and how you finish. They're both important. Anyone can start well. But if you read your Bible, you see not everyone finished well. And remember, God is not a respecter of persons. I was pondering upon this today. You started well, but who did bewitched you? And so God is not a respecter of persons. There are moments in our life that we can start well and then something happens. Somehow we're not fervent like we should. And you know what? That carries over to our children. Our lack of love for God can be seen in the home. People will notice it. You know, you always hear uh, things on the street. Oh, I used to be a Christian or I used to do that. I used to be like you. Well, what happened? Why aren't you continuing? What took place? What happened? Or you hear testimonies of people uh, simply uh, not finishing altogether, being apostates altogether, not having, you know, this fervent faith uh, in God to finish well. They they, they draw back. And, and we, do, we see that most of the Israelites in the wilderness drew back. They didn't really have faith in their God. And not a lot of people have this manifestation of faith in their God that will help them continue by God's grace. And uh, we want to make sure that we have this genuine, unfeigned faith, as Paul says, that we may continue uh, to, to be faithful in what God has called us to do. Second of all, they were unfaithful, not only in their combat, in their, in their response, God-given responsibilities, but they were unfaithful in their commitments. Look at verse 10. They kept not the covenant of God and they refused, sorry, and refused to walk in his what? In his law. And now God's people were delivered from the oppression of the Egyptians to serve and worship the Lord in the wilderness. But they, were un, but they were unfaithful how? Well, they began, let me say, number one, they began to set up a golden cow and worship a cow. Worship a cow. Then worship God. And then God gives them a law that thou shalt have no other gods before me. 
and they make a commitment. Okay, we're going to honor the Lord. And then later on, you see them setting up idols again, all through and through. Israel set up idols. A righteous king will come and he'll destroy those idols and set up, set up right again. And then it will just keep happening over and over and over again. Does it happen in your life? You're committed to the Lord one moment, the next moment an idol creeps in. And I, I guarantee you, you have those idols in your life long enough, your, your, your children will pick up on it. And it will be a snare in their walk in the future. That's why it's, it's good to actually admit to your children that, you know what, I used to worship this and I used to worship that. And the, and the television was my God at one time in my life. But you know what? We put an axe through that or we did this and we did that. We don't make sure that we're going to remove anything that gets in the way of God. You know, being transparent with our children is so important. We once upon a time worship a golden calf. Yeah, that, I mean, that's being transparent. That's being open to the next generation. Why? So they don't go and worship golden calves. They don't set up idols in their life. They're, they're committed, if you will, to the covenant of God, commitment, walking. And over here it says they refused to walk in his law. Now, this is a stubborn demeanor. This is shrugging the shoulder. And the Bible says that they've done that to God. Uh, not just one time. They did it many times. They shrugged the shoulder. So, you know what it means by just shrugging the shoulder? You know what that means? Just let me go. Just let me do what I want to do. I don't want to walk in your laws. I don't want your word to be governing my affairs. I want to do what I want to do. Go ahead and do it. But you know who's going to suffer? The next generation. Because our life will impact the next generation one way or another. It really does. It affects them. So the Lord gives them a law. And even after that, they see uh, the, you know, themselves setting up idols in their life. And even whoring with other nations. They go a whoring. And so the Lord hears their cry at one particular time when they were enslaved in Egypt. He fights their battles with 10 powerful plagues that was demonstrated before their eyes. He sets them free and then they do the dirty on God. That's, that's Israel. That's his people. When the Lord chose Moses to deliver his people, he said to Moses this, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. But what happened? Look at verse 11. And forgot his works and his wonders that he, sh that sh that he had showed them. For some reason, Israel had a memory loss of God's goodness. And by the way, it was common. God was good. He showed them his power. He delivered them this. He answered their prayer. He gave them food for you know, their desire. And they just forget everything of God's goodness in their life. They forget it. We, we spoke about this last week. Time and time again, they just forget it. They forget it. God does something good. They forget it. God does something good. They forget it. Again. Has that happened in our life? Is the goodness of God forgotten so easily that our children can pick up on it? Or do we praise God before them? Are we so thankful before them, no matter what happens? Teaching them to honor and praise God. Now, from verses to, uh, 12 to 16, we see the detailed wonders of God in the life of his people. And again, 
Asaph, I believe, does this purposefully under the inspiration of God, of course, as he writes, to remind his generation of God's goodness. So we're not only seeing the behavior of the Israelites, but we're seeing behavior of God. Look at verse 12. Marvelous things did he, God, in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. Now, Zoan is a place in Egypt. So notice firstly in verse 13, notice what kind of marvelous things that God had done. First of all, God was marvelous in his power. Look at verse 13, sorry. He divided the sea and he caused them to pass through. What a, what a sight to see, amen. He made the waters to stand as an heap. Now, <laughs> I don't know about you, but that would have been a, a marvelous wonder. I mean, how can you see that and walk through the Red Sea and experience that? And then look back and just, you know, yeah, you just memory loss. You know, you, you lost your memory of how God can actually split the, the, the waters like an elevator. Like nothing. And you just forget about the power of God. He divided the sea. That would have been amazing. It was marvelous, the Bible says. Another marvelous thing we see in verse 14. In the daytime also he led them with a cloud and, in all, and all the night with a light of fire. This is God's marvelous direction. Not only God's marvelous power, but his direction. And God leads us. He leads his people. He's always guided his people. He's directed his people. And, uh, and, and, and again, because he loves his people. There's no doubt about that. God doesn't lead them if he didn't love them. He, he heard their cry and he leads them. In verse 15 to 16, we notice God's marvelous provision. He clave the rocks in the wilderness. He gave them drink as out of a great depth. He brought streams also out of the rock and caused waters to run down like a river. And here we see that God provided for his people in a very marvelous way. What we see here is that God is able to guide his people with his power to deliver them, direct them and provide for them. And in all this, they were still not satisfied with their God. They were still kind of discontent. Nothing, if you will, satisfied these people. They were unfaithful in their combats. They were unfaithful in their commitment. And they were also unfaithful in their contentment. Look at verse 17. And they sinned yet more against him by provoking the Most High in the wilderness. So even after all that, they sinned yet more against him by provoking the most high God. How, now we're going to see how they provoked him and how they tempted him. Verse 18, they tempted God in their heart by asking me for their lust. And look at verse 19. Yea, they spake against God. How dare they? They said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? You know, if you, if you, it might sound something like this. He can't do it. He can't do it. Can he really do it? Nah, he can't do it. They're provoking him. What do you mean he can't do it? Didn't you see his hand? How he, the ten plagues and how he split those, you know, uh, the Red Sea and the two. Didn't you see how he uh, led you with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of, uh, uh, you know, of, of fire? Didn't you see how he uh, gushed out water from a rock? Didn't you see all that? And you're still talking like that about God? Like you speak against him? Hey, you can't do it. 
as if God can't hear you because <laughs> they spoke within their hearts. God can hear your heart. He knows everything that goes on in here. They tempted God in their heart by asking meat for their lust and the way they spoke against him. Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Absolutely he can. He always provided for his people in every generation. God wasn't a heathen that didn't provide for his people. Ask Elijah. Even a little birdie went and fed him. Even God himself fed him when he was running away from that wicked queen Jezebel. He was discouraged and there was there a biscuit, I believe, a cake was cooked for him. And he woke up and God says, eat. <laughs> Gave him some strength and he traveled so long. Yeah, just, just ask David. He says, I've been young, now I'm old. And I've never seen the, uh, the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging for bread. Just ask him. He'll tell you. Any righteous person that believes God and knows his goodness will tell you how good God is. So what do we need to do? We need to be teaching our children of how just good God is. No matter what God did for these people, they were never satisfied. Listen, they were simply saying this, God's not good enough. God's not good enough. You know, God knows the murmuring spirit in the heart of people. Why isn't God good enough? Why? So from these three points... We must reach out to our children, next generation, reach and raise them in a way that we teach them not to be like these people. Number one, to teach them to be faithful to God, even when we're faced with tough battles. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 6 verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Listen, the Christian life is not easy. It's difficult. Man, living, a, living a Christian like a Christian here in this world is is very difficult. It's, it's, it's not easy. It's hard. But with God's help, we can. I want you to see 2 Timothy chapter 2. Turn your Bibles there, please. 2 Timothy chapter number 2. Look at verse 1. The Bible says that thou therefore, my son, be strong in yourself. Does it say that? What does it say? We're not, we're not. Be strong in the grace that is in who? Christ, Christ Jesus. Oh, what marvelous grace. Have you tasted of that grace? That grace, how amazing a grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was what? And now I what? I once was blind and now I see. Don't you think God is able to save a soul? Don't you think he's able to lead you and guide you? Yeah, absolutely. He pulled you out of that miry clay and he sets your foot upon a rock and he establishes your going and he puts a new song in your mouth, a song of praise to God. Why do people lose that? I believe it's because what Peter said, they don't add to their faith. They don't grow. And they forget how they were purged from their sin. And they're not fruitful in their life. I believe that's, that's one of the causes. But the Bible says he's to be strong in God's grace. And the things we, we looked at verse 2 last week. Remember that? We, and the things that thou hast learned of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Okay, well, so, well that's not easy. 
It's hard to find faithful men. Where the Bible declares that uh, every man proclaimeth his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. So finding faithful people to work with them and they continue to follow. I mean, it's hard, but, you know, by the grace of God, a virtuous woman who can find it, you know, it can be found by the grace of God. And then when you do, you, you, you work in their life and you, 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 you commit uh, to teach them or your children, whoever it may be. And, uh, and look at the next verse here. Thou therefore endure what? As a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Yeah, the battles will come. It's not going to be easy. There's going to be ups and downs in life. But that, that's, you know, again, I said it last week. I'll say it, the morale of the people, the, the apathy of our culture should not affect us in loving God, serving God and passing on the truth to the next generation. Man, it's almost like the light is just flickering in Christendom today. Man, we're heading into this grace of great, great apostasy. When the, when the Lord returns, shall he find faith in all the earth? Like, is there anyone going to be left? Because people are dropping off like flies. And even those that are, uh, once loved the Lord, somehow they've become you know, hard, callous and hardened and indifferent toward the truth. We must teach them to be faithful even in tough times. Second of all, we must teach them to be faithful to God even when they are tempted by worldly pleasures. Look at the next verse, verse 4. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a what? To be a soldier. We must teach them to be committed to God. Committed to God and not follow after dumb idols, the pleasures of this world. Man, that's a big one, isn't it? That's a, that's a huge, massive uh, lesson to learn because we're seeing that we're being inundated with a whole heap of stuff in the world. It's, that's causing many a people to go astray. Thirdly, we must be faithful to God by having an attitude of gratitude. That's what we need to teach them. Teach them to be content with God. Listen, teach your children that God is more than enough. Yeah, that's what we need to teach them. First Timothy 6 talks about uh, that godliness with contentment is what? Great. It's great gain. It's not just little gain, it's great gain. Godliness with contentment, both of them. To walk godly, to be godlike in my you know, characteristic of love and, 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 and all these different things. Not in his omnipotence, not his omniscience. We can't be like God in those areas, but in holiness. Be ye holy for I am holy. In his love, uh, in his mercy, in his grace. And his faithfulness. We need to be teaching our children that we need to be content with God. He says, for we brought nothing into the world and certainly we can carry nothing out. Having food and raiment, let us be uh, there with content. And, uh, and then he says to Timothy, O man of God, what a title to have. I don't know about you, but that's a wonderful, beautiful title to have. A man of God. I mean, I know some people have abused that title, but think about it. You know, I'm not a man of the world. I'm a man of God. 
flee these things, he says. Flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. He goes on to say, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou also called and have professed a good profession before many witnesses. Listen, our children uh, should never learn that mammon is more important than the master. You say, how, how, they, how they learn that by your life? They, they see uh, a balance that you love God more than anything else in this world and that God has, I've read it today, that God has given us good things to enjoy in their right place. And that we are more in, inclined to be like God, generous, loving, kind, good. This morning I was teaching the children to embrace the wisdom of God, not only when they're young, but when they grow up, because that's, that's when the rubber meets the road, isn't it? I keep reminding them of that. I keep reminding them that you're here, you're under this roof, you're under my authority. I don't know what's going on in your heart, but I sure hope that one day when you go, that you will still continue to embrace the wisdom of God and you don't let it spill and fall to the ground everything that you've learned. Have a look at Proverbs 9. We'll close with uh, this thought. Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9. And look at verse 1. Wisdom have builded her house. She hath hewn down her seven pillars. She hath killed her beast. She hath mingled her what? wine. She hath also furnished her table. She hath set forth her maidens. She crieth upon the high places of the city. Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. As for him that wanteth understanding... She saith to him, what? What does wisdom say? Come, eat of my bread and drink of, my, of the wine which I have what? Mingled. You know, this verse alone, I'm not really want to speak about alcohol and things of that nature, but we know from this verse that there is a difference between, you know, the world mingling mixed wine and God mingling true, authentic wine that is not, you know, overly fermented to get anybody drunk. It's fruit of the vine. It tastes good. It's actually even good for you in moderation. And, and, and the wisdom of God knows how to make that wine good. Not, not potent, just right. It's just good. That's My wisdom knows how to do it. And I use this illustration that God, you know, gives us bread. He gives us wine, gives us good things to enjoy it's like his word. He builds us up. And then when you grow up, what are you going to do with that bread? What are you going to do with that wine? You know, it, God makes our cup runs over. You're going to spill it to all to the ground. Everything that you have learnt, everything that you have learnt in this house, when you go out of this house and you establish your own household, what are you going to do? Are you going to let everything fall to the ground? Are you going to, you know, just let it spill to the ground and not care? You're not going to drink from that wine? You're not going to have the wisdom of God rule your own home. You're not going to have Joshua, you know, basically that verse Joshua 24 edged in your heart and say, for me and my house, 
We will serve the Lord. I'm not going to be like your fathers on the other side of the, uh, you know, uh, worshipped idols. Now think about the process of making wine. How does it start? Anyone, how does it start? Okay, before that. Before that. You plough the ground. How long does it take to plough ground? A fair, a fair, yeah, a fair size. It'd take a while. And then the planting begins. How long does that take? And then the watering. How long does that take? And then you've got to wait for what? Harvest. And then you have the picking. Harvesting. How long does that take? And then when you pick it, then you have to, what, tread the, wine, uh, the grapes, right? And, uh, and then you can just imagine the whole process of all of that, and then to fill the barrel to the brim just for someone to kick that up and all spill to the ground. What a waste. What an absolute waste. And I told them, I said, all these teachings, all these principles, brick upon brick, and you grow up and you don't want God to be your God. You don't want to embrace him. You want to forget God. You want to forget his works. You want to forget his provision. You want to forget everything that God has done in your life. You want to be a dumb mule. What a waste. When the principle is simply this, the wine and wisdom that the Lord makes will make you sober. But the wine and wisdom that the, that the world gives will make you silly. Look at the ver- next verse, verse 6. Forsake the who and what? Live. Live. You know, it's foolish to live like an atheist, isn't it? It's foolish. A fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But you know what's fuller? Even if it's a word, you know what's more foolish? (laughs) Someone that knows God, seen him work, and then rejects him later on. I kind of think that that's a little bit like Hebrews 10, isn't it? That those people that go on to sin willfully, forsake the fellowship altogether, say, I'm done with this. I've been saving face all my life. I can't, I'm free. No, you're not. Death is coming. You won't live. Look at this. Forsake the foolish and live. Look at this. And go in the way of what? Understanding. I, uh, a couple of days ago, met a young man. A young man. He was a teenager. He was probably 13, 14 years old. He was gathered together after school amongst other children. He was doing some outreach. And, um, and the attitude of these little children is absolutely amazing of that generation, how lofty are their eyes. I mean, Elisha was with me and he was just standing from a distance. I think it was a bit, I don't know, were you a bit fearful, Elisha? No, not really, I don't know, but he was curious. And I don't know, I just saw him from a distance. He, he didn't really come next to me as I was talking. But I said to that little young man, I said to him, and they're all trying to be tough and act tough amongst themselves. I said, do you know where you're gonna go when you die? He said, yeah. I'm going to go where my mum is. She's going straight to hell. I'm going to be with her. She had, she had me out of wedlock. I said, no, it doesn't have to be that way. 
I said, mate, you can get right with God. Your mum can get right. You can get right with God. You, God loves you, mate. He wants to give you a home in heaven. doesn't have to be that way. Forsake the foolish and live, the Bible says, and go on the way of understanding. Embrace your God. Don't be like your forefathers. Don't be like the other generation that reject God. You don't have to do that. He eventually took a track, went to the toilet, and on the way out, he was going in. And I looked at him, I said, hey, he goes, it's in my bag. I said, don't forget to read it. He says, I won't. I said, hey, listen. I said, God wants to be the father in your life that you never had. He goes, whoa, how do you know I didn't have a father? Are you a, are you a magician or something like that? I said, well, I didn't know. I just put two to two together. If he had a child out of wedlock, I just thought maybe he doesn't. But even if he did and, he, and his dad wasn't really being a father to him, leading him and guiding him and neglecting him. Listen, there's a father in heaven that wants to father you. He wants, he wants to care for you. If the next generation do not embrace the wisdom of God when they get older and they let the, they let the gospel spill to the ground, the truth that they've learned spilled to the ground, they don't embrace the, the, the word of God, the wisdom of God, then their generation will have no hope. You know what's going to happen? They're not going to have a godly seed. And it's going to make it harder for them. By the way, if you didn't grow up with a godly seed in your home, you know, you can put a stop to it. You can put a stop to the domino effect. Did you know that? How? You be a godly seed. You decide, I want to love God. I want to fear God. I want to praise God. And I want to, if, my, if, my, if God willing, God gives me kids, I want to teach them to love God. Yeah, you be a godly seed. And you be a blessing for the future of the next generation. I don't care how dark it gets. I'm not going to go with the flow of the culture. I don't care how strange I look in the world. Amen. This world's not our home. We're just passing through like we sung just in a moment ago. Because I guarantee as the world gets darker and as Christendom gets colder and, uh, and the more hotter you want to be and, and you love God, the more weird you're going to feel. You're not going to fit in. And that's how it should be, by the way, for every true Christian that loves the Lord. You're not supposed to fit in in this world. You're supposed to be different to make a difference. Well, in the world, they want to hear it. Well, at least make a difference in, in, in the sphere of your influence, at least to your children. They start there. You have a captive audience there. Not all the time. Start there. Tell them about the wonders of God. Tell them about Calvary. Tell them about the resurrection. Tell them about Pentecost. We weren't there to see those things. But you know what? John says these things are written that you may believe. These things are written. There's power in God's word. You don't have to be there to witness it. Look, many of their, the people were there to witness it. What happened to them? Well, it ended up to be dumb yells, stubborn. God's word is powerful. I know it's going to do its work that God purposed it to do. and never return void. There's power in the God's word. And you need to grab the word of God like a baton and pass it to the next generation. And it's up to them to do the same. You're not responsible for them. 
So in other words, if you actually teach them everything that God wants you to teach them, love them, live, live the Bible before them, you've done your part and it's up to them to do their part and so forth. You're not responsible for their actions and reactions, but you're responsible for teaching them and loving them and living it before them. Amen? Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Father, for your marvelous works, your wonders that you have done. Oh, Lord, when we consider the sun and the moon and the stars, that is enough. That is enough to be in awe of your handiwork. But what makes it even more sweeter is the fact that you are mindful of us and you want something to do with us. You care about your people. You care for us. We're so glad you do. And I pray that we would not be dumb mules, stubborn, rebellious, but we would love you back. We would honor you with the life that you've given us before our children and we'll teach it to them. We pray that you would have our attention, full attention in all that we do, dear God. We love you. I pray that our love for you will yet be perfected yet more and more as you continue to work in us and through us and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.